So welcome, Welvers of Product. I am here today with Steve Johnson, Product Management Guru and CEO of Under 10. Steve, why don't you start this off by giving us a little overview of your background? Okay. Well, like many product managers, I stumbled into the job rather than, you know, planning for it back in my day. And even today, there are very few places where you can get them like a degree in product management. So I majored in marketing and minored in computer science, which made me pretty much unemployable. So I became a programmer, did that for a couple of years, and then moved into a sales engineering role for a product I had used as a programmer, and then moved into sales and started out selling everybody else. And my boss said, what's going on with you? And I said, well, you know, I've put together a playbook for, you know, how to sell this thing. And he said, well, whatever it is you're doing, could you train the rest of the salespeople? And I did. And suddenly our office is out selling the country. And the VP calls me and says, hey, can you do this training thing for the whole country? And I went, sure. And so I did the training. And when I was in Los Angeles, the VP of marketing came over and said, who are you and why are you doing this? And I said, well, I'm just a sales guy from Virginia out here training. And he, she said, uh, well, that's not your job. That's the product manager's job. And I said, yeah, okay. Well, why isn't he doing it? And she said, hey, good point. So she fired the product manager and made me the product manager. And so I moved up through the ranks of product management to CMO. And then in the mid-90s, a buddy of mine started Pragmatic Marketing and asked me to join him. And I did that for... Well, about 20 years. So since the mid-90s, I've been doing coaching for product managers, first with Pragmatic Marketing and now with my own company, Under 10. Awesome. So fill us in, Under 10. How did you come up with that name? (laughs) So often when I would do training, people would come up to me and say, you know, I was busy before and now you've given me 30 or 40 more things I have to do. Where do I begin? And I would always say, you know, pick Under 10 things to focus on. And then as I started working on, you know, helping people implement the best practices of product management, I kept coming back to, you know, most of these processes are too complex. They have too many steps. They have too many artifacts. They have too many meetings. And so I kind of adopted under 10 as my mantra. You know, if you can't do it in under 10 steps, you're making it too hard. So under 10, under 10 playbook. I understand now. It's a good name. I like it. So. Let's take this to uh, the current state of product management. You've been around, you've worked in product management for quite a while now. So let's talk about the good and the bad. Okay. Well, you know, when I started under 10 a few years ago, the first thing I did is I called 100 VPs of product management, CPOs, CMOs, CEOs, and talked to them about some of the problems that they were encountering and primarily around Agile. I mean, my question was, you know, what has Agile done to help you or hurt you? And I pretty consistently heard the challenges that they had been having with Agile was it pulled product managers ever more into development, into more of a development support role and away from, you know, the executive's representative at the product level. And I heard things like our roadmap is now two weeks long. You know, what's, what's our vision beyond the roadmap? And so the, the, the good and bad that I'm seeing, the, the, the good is certainly, and, and, and we saw this at, at the Pendemonium Conference just a few months ago, the number of people talking about the importance of firsthand customer experience, doing customer discovery. And the bad is in many organizations, as a result of Agile, I think, 
product managers are being pulled into more operational support roles rather than product strategy roles. But the good thing is, you know, a number of people I talk to say, you know, our product managers are spending time with customers every week, understanding their problems so that we're doing a better job of informing development. So that's kind of the good and the bad. So with Agile in particular, it's probably not going away. How should product management and product management leadership be thinking about it? I mean, I imagine a a roadmap of two weeks is probably not ideal. Right. Very true. Well, you know, I, I should say this. I love Agile. When I started building the software product for Under 10 Playbook, we adopted Agile straight out of the chute. You know, we're like, let's do a little MVP. You know, let's have two week sprints. Let's have formal discovery meetings and let's have formal acceptance meetings. And I just, as with many of the people I've dealt with, nobody can imagine going back to to the old days. But in many ways, well, no, in every way, (laughs) Agile is a development methodology. It's not a product management methodology. And I think a lot of times people go through a scrum class and say, okay, now I'm a product owner, which is, you know, I guess the same as a product manager because they both have the word product at the beginning. I guess I'm supposed to sit next to development 24 hours a day and answer their questions. If we let development define product management, they'll define it in a development support way. And, you know, while we're at it, not to pick on development, if we ask sales to define product management, they'll say that the product manager's job is to be the best sales engineer. You know, I need you to go on sales calls with me. I need you to do a demo for me. I need you to present the roadmap for me. And frankly, marketing is often the same way as well. And that is, you know, hey, I need product content. I need some blog posts. I need some articles. I need some screenshots. But when I talked to these executives, they said, I've always thought of product management as my representative at the product level. You know, the company's gotten too big. I've got too many things going on as CEO. I can't be the product manager at the same time. So in a way of thinking, it's like development went agile and hallelujah, but there's still a lot of product management that needs to be done that is far beyond the scope of development. We have to look at, you know, what products do we want to build two years out? You know, what are we going to do in the next release in terms of functionality? What are we doing to encourage the growth of the product we have now? And the way I find works best is something I've talked about with you, I think, before. I think product managers should be known as problem managers. Instead of being the expert on the product, we should be expert on the problem. And in my dealings with my own development team, I sit down and I say, here's the problem I'm trying to address. Here's the persona. Here's the problem. I've seen it in this instance and this one. And let me tell you a little story. And then I say to my developer, come up with some ideas to address this. And what's amazing about developers is they are so much smarter about technology than I am. Instead of me saying, I want a button, they come back and say, well, we've thought about it in a few different ways. We could do it this way or this way or this way. Which way do you think best solves the problem? And I almost always say, well, let's play that through. You know, here was the problem that I understood. How would this solve? Yeah, yeah, that would solve the problem. And so it's, I'm primarily about the problem and they're primarily about the solution. And that seems to be the uh, scenario that works best in working with development. And oh, by the way, I use the same technique with marketing. 
when I use an agency to do, you know, my website or do a campaign for me, I sit down and I say, here are the problems I'm encountering. You know, I'm trying to increase my leads. I'm trying to increase uh, my awareness. I'm trying to deal with some problem on the sales side. What do you recommend? And they may say, well, you know, for that scenario that you've described, you ought to be doing eBooks or you ought to be doing webinars or you ought to be doing a podcast with the fine folks at Pendo. So it's a mix of, say, the problem and also goal orientation, right? Mm -hmm. Is that a good way to put it? I like that. Yeah. More, well, if you will, focus more on outcomes rather than outputs. Absolutely. I just had a chat with John Cutler about that, in fact. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about the right compensation, or excuse me, Whoa. compensation is very important, but let's talk about a little bit about the composition of successful product teams. You know, based on this, how do you build out your product teams? Good one. Well, you know, I have a friend who is a executive recruiter who specializes in, you know, VP and up kind of people. And she introduced me to a term a while back that I'm still laughing about. She called me up. She said, you know, I wonder if you can help me. I'm looking for a person who might fill this role. And she said, I'll admit it. It's a purple squirrel. And I went, hang on. That's jargon I'm not familiar with. And she said, oh, yeah, something we, we talk about in the recruiting world. She'll get on the phone with a employer who is looking to place somebody. And they'll give a laundry list of requirements for the job. You know, they they need to have 15 years of this and five years of that. They need to know our domain. They need to know our products. They need to understand our competitive landscape. They need to understand the markets we serve. They need to preferably live, you know, within the Boston area or within the D.C. area. And they just take all this stuff out. And she says, you know, what they're looking for is sometimes called a unicorn. You know, it doesn't really exist in nature. But they also want that person to work for peanuts. And so that's why we call it a purple squirrel. You know, there are no such things as squirrels that are purple. And they're also finding that kind of a person who will work for peanuts is also difficult. And, you know, when I do it myself, when I talk to, you know, leaders who are looking for people, every time they add a requirement, I'm like, you're reducing your market segment. You know, there's only so many people out there. But what I find is product management teams need a kind of a collective skill set. Instead of the purple squirrel saying, I'm looking for somebody with this and this and this and this and this, I see there are really five things that we're looking for on a product management team. We need somebody and maybe multiple somebodies who understand the business side of product. You know, they've been schooled in product management. They've been doing it for a while. They know how to do sales forecasting or revenue forecasting. They know how to do the financials, they know how to talk to executives, they've got a business skill set. So I call that business expertise. We also need some people who are really good at working with development, which means they're technical enough to have a conversation, technical enough to understand the issues that we're talking about. And I've certainly encountered many product managers who don't know nearly enough about technology. And they sit down with development and say, okay, here's my story. As a user, I want this feature so that I will have this feature I want. And the developers are like, I don't even know what to do with that. Or, you know, my story is it needs to be better. And I've encountered many times when development says, you need to give us specs. And that's wrong too. But we certainly need 
enough technical knowledge to be able to have a technical conversation on an implementation so that we can say, yes, that feels that that's the right way to go forward. So there's a, a technical expertise that you would have in multiple people inside product management. There's also a market expertise. When I was running marketing here in Virginia, I had a specialist for each of the market areas that we serviced. Because it turns out, you know, in Australia, summertime is in the wrong part of the year. Or, you know, when you're in the UK, you know, it's not called an elevator, it's called a lift. And there's so much more about understanding a market than just the language, but the language is part of it as well. So we need expertise on the markets that we're trying to serve, either geographic markets, as I've illustrated, or industrial markets. I don't know nearly enough to be working in, say, medical technology. I don't know what's going on with all of the regulations that are there, but we need somebody on the team that knows that industry, if if we're going to serve that industry. And then finally, there's this amorphous, not very clear thing called domain expertise. And domain expertise is the science behind your products. The market is the place where your buyers are. But the domain is the place where your specialty is. So, for instance, I have a friend who is an expert in the domain of fraud, and he has an algorithm for fraud detection. And he could use that at a bank, or he could use that at a software company, or he could use that in some blockchain, something or another. So the domain is somewhat different than market. And odds are most people on a product team need to have some understanding of the domain that they're in so that we don't ask for things that are either impossible or, you know, are pedagogically incorrect, if you will. So when I look at a product team, I'm looking for a group of people who gets things done. I mean, they're not a group of people who say, let's go to a meeting. Wow, that was good. You know, the work is over. People who like to get stuff done, but I like a combination of skills of somebody who's got business and domain or somebody who has business and marketing or domain and technology. So instead of saying, I need all of that in one head, let's see if we can build a staff that has all of that expertise in it. Does that make sense? I think that makes a lot of sense. You're in essence building a patchwork of coverage, so to speak, from Mm -hmm. your product team. Let's, Let's call that a mosaic. A mosaic. I like that better. Uh, <laughs> I think I'll use that. I also learned about purple squirrels today. I didn't think purple I, squirrels and the mosaic. That's right. Yes. Purple squirrels, kind of like trying to hire a unicorn, except in the unicorn case, you're probably willing to pay them. In the purple squirrel case, you're paying them with peanuts. So to speak. Exactly. I saw a job posting the other day that I was actually qualified for. They were looking for 15 years experience in social media. And it was a marketing specialist job. So it probably, you know, wasn't paying very much. And I just thought, how many people in the world have been on social media for 15 years? It's a pretty small group of people. I've been blogging since 1999, but I think Facebook just had their 10th anniversary or was that Twitter? You know, so there's social media hasn't been around for 15 years. In other words, purple squirrel, man. Yeah. Yeah. 15 years in a specialist job. You don't even get a, you know, manager title there. Right. I guess, I guess they wanted someone who didn't do that well for 15 years, maybe. <laughs> exactly. So we, we covered some of it too, but uh, 
you know, attributes most important that you seek out in product managers? I understand the mosaic. Mm-hmm. What about other skills, soft skills, et cetera? You know, soft skills are always a tricky place for me because I, I think so many of those soft skills, I just assume everybody has. And yet, of course, they don't. Certainly, I would look for somebody who is fundamentally inquisitive. And I would look for somebody who likes, you know, is actually passionate about the area that we're serving. My daughter is passionate about alternative forms of education. And I convinced her a few years ago to start her own company. And she was delighted with the work that she was doing, except she was so lonely working by herself. So she went ahead and got a real job, but she's now in a position where she's, she's helping people in the world of education. And she just, she's ecstatic about it. I've talked to a number of people over the years who say, you know, I don't care what the product is. You know, I can sell anything or I can manage anything. And I haven't really found that to be the case. I'm looking for somebody who is, who wants to take up the charge and be an evangelist for the products that we're building. So that, that passion is something I look for. And I also look for people who can get shit done. You know, it's amazing how many people seem to be meeting attenders. And I had a person working for me years ago who was one of those. She, she came from a big company where it was just, you know, meetings throughout the course of the day. And she was like, when are we going to start having meetings? And I'm like, no, we're, we're not doing that. You know, here's, here are the requirements, you know, go do stuff. And she came back to me later on and said, this is so great. I mean, it's not like I have to get buy-in from 75 people before I do anything. And I went, yeah, exactly. Let's get stuff done. Yeah, I think that's a great summary. So what I heard was curiosity or inquisitiveness, mm-hmm. passion, and the ability to get shit done. Exactly. Exactly. I think that's a good list. So you've recently become hands-on building a software product. You know, we, we talked about your approach in general to product management, but are you doing any other things that we might say are, are different than a typical CPO? In contrast to the other jobs that I've had in product management over the years, I've really gotten into conversation over documentation. I, you know, my first product management job, I was writing, you know, massive tomes of my business plan. And, and that was kind of fun. There was a time when I went back to a company where I had been a product manager and the new product manager came over and said, wow, this is a fabulous business case. I've been using it as my Bible, you know, ever since you left. And, you know, that was really, you know, nice to hear. But today it's like we do a couple of things. I mean, we we're brief in our artifacts and verbose in our discussions. And as a result of the discussion, we find that we're articulating acceptance criteria you know, as I talk about personas and their problems. And it was really interesting in our first meeting, you know, the the lead developer and I got together, my, well, actually, I should say my business partner and I got together and started, you know, it's like, okay, boom, here's what we're going to do. Here's my vision, blah, blah, blah. And I said, let's, let's just, you know, brainstorm a little while and here's a marker and there's a whiteboard. And I started a long list of problems that I wanted to solve. And when I wasn't really paying attention, he wrote a long list of features he wanted to build. And it was just such an interesting difference in the way we looked at the problem. But ultimately, you know, we found a really powerful way to work together in terms of me talking about personas and problems and specific scenarios of problems. And then 
having the confidence in him and the trust that he would come back with something brilliant. And every time he comes back with something better than what I was thinking. So I've really become a believer in I'll own the problem, you own the solution. And before it goes into production, you'll show me how you solve the problem and I'll concur. We'll go through a formal acceptance process. And so even though it's, it's a small team, we're still pretty formal in the meetings, but very informal in the artifacts. And the other thing that's, of course, fun is I was developing Under 10 Playbook by using Under 10 Playbook. So, you know, straight away, we were like, all right, let's get this one piece working, this thing called product stories, so that I've got a place to put that so that I can write down all the product stories so that you can write the product stories to support product stories. <laughs> it's kind of an infinite loop there. But he developed, you know, just this core piece. And then we developed this other piece and this other piece. And now I'm in it every day managing the product from a business outcome standpoint rather than a here's a feature I want, here's another feature I want. So would you say it's accurate to say Agile's redefined development or the way development's been done? Boy, I hope so. You know, I think one of the things that's funny about the discussions I have about Agile is so many people outside of development remember waterfall differently than reality. It's like we remember the 60s, those of us who grew up in it, completely based on our memories of the Andy Griffith show and Leave it to Beaver. I mean, the 60s weren't that great. I mean, the country went insane <laughs> in 1968. You know, it was just like, what are you talking about? What 60s are you talking about? You know, it was fine as long as you were a wealthy white man living in the 60s. And I think we've done, we've done that with Waterfall. It's like, gosh, remember the good old days when we knew a year in advance what we would deliver? And I'm like, did you? Do you remember? I mean, the chaos report came out and I don't know when it started coming out. And they were saying, you know, 80% of projects fail on date and scope. So what's brilliant about Agile is not actually more code faster. I mean, a, a lot of the promises of Agile perhaps have been pumped up in the wrong way. What is really brilliant is embracing the uncertainty of the products that we're building. You know, we're not quite sure we've got the requirements right. We got this from the sales team. We got this from the executive team. We got this from the customer base. As best we can understand it, this is what that means. Let's build for two weeks and then show it to some people before we're nine months down the road. And it's exactly the way you drive on a long trip. My son used to go to Berkeley College of Music in Boston. I live in D.C., outside D.C., and I used to drive up there a lot because I had to, like, bring him a bass amp or, you know, bring him stuff from the house. And so I would drive, and my plan was not, in the end, the way I got there. I mean, I'd run into traffic, so I'd take a side tour, you know. I, and for that matter, I started by going the wrong direction. I would leave the neighborhood and go away on 66 to pick up 81 and take it up and over to Boston, which the GPS hated. I mean, the poor GPS voice was screaming at me on the whole trip. Turn around, turn around, you're going the wrong way. And I think Waterfall was that way. It was like, hey, we're going to Boston. Here are the, the highways we're going to take to get there. And we won't deviate no matter what happens. And the reality is, gosh, there's terrible traffic in New York or there's terrible traffic in Baltimore. You end up taking another route. 
And so even in the waterfall days, we never really achieved the plan. And in these days with Agile, it's like, we're not completely sure what we're doing. So here's two weeks of work, give us feedback. Here's two more weeks of work, give us feedback. And I've seen teams like my own, I've seen teams get into a rhythm, you know, where they're doing 20 stories a week or five stories a week or whatever it is, you know, story points or stories or whatever. And they get really consistent in their delivery, which gives me imminent capabilities of forecasting where they'll be at launch time. I know what my stories are. I know what the priorities are. And even there, oh, one of my favorite quotes that I'm quoting myself here, I've been saying for years, the challenge we have with roadmapping is this. We allocate 100% of our resources to the roadmap and use the other 100% for special projects. Yep. Everybody needs at least two, 300%. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, if we put together a roadmap or we put together a backlog and we don't refresh it or revise it based on reality, we miss opportunities. And, you know, it could be the sales guy comes in and says, I might be able to close a deal if you commit to this feature. And I'm like, hey, we need the money. Fine. Let me bump that thing up. And since I'm using some form of Kanban queuing, which I am in in my software, that means I can prioritize something way up real quickly. And then when development is ready for more work, they get that next thing. Instead of everybody stop what you're doing. I've got this hot thing. So working in the two-week cycles instead of, you know, a six-month cycle has, I think, been eminently valuable to product management as well as to development. But Agile's a development methodology. You know, there's an Agile manifesto. Do we need a product management manifesto, a product you know, management I, methodology? I wonder, you know, it, I love that, you know, and I, I would want it to say things like, one of the quotes that, that we had at Pragmatic that I put on a coffee mug was, your opinion, while interesting, is irrelevant. What we need is market facts. You know, I'd love to have a manifesto that says, we make decisions based on facts rather than opinions. And we in product management take charge of the problem and rely on the professionals in marketing and development to solve those problems. I don't know what else goes in the manifesto, but, you know, I absolutely think that there needs to be because for some organizations, product management is support or, you know, it's reading aloud from JIRA to the developers. It's a secretarial role. And yet, again, when I talk to company leadership, they're expecting a strategist rather than, you know, an enabler of dysfunction. So maybe there's a good opportunity there. Maybe so. Well-defined, structured methodology and accompanying manifesto. Maybe so. Maybe so. And I have an under 10 playbook canvas that I use in my training classes to help people define their ideal process. So maybe that's the beginning of some sort of a standardized product management process. But, But here's the funny thing. I've got another belief, and that is I don't believe in best practices. Best practices aren't best. They're just common. What's best for that company may not be best for your company. And so what we really need to do is look at methods and say, well, which ones of these fit our business? You know, we have a direct sales force and a complex product, or we have a web sales force and a simple product. Well, you know, the way you do product management and product marketing will be substantially different between those two. 
So that's why in my some of my workshops, I help people develop their process by pulling together, you know, great ideas from myriad places. I mean, I love, you know, customer discovery is a great idea from Lean Startup. Personas is a brilliant idea from Alan Cooper and now many others. And using whatever those common practices are to build your own process. But yeah, there's an opportunity there. If people want to send me an email, we can start a a massive Google Doc of all the things that we believe to be true. Data wins over opinions. Conversation is better than documentation. I'm sure there's three or four others in the product management manifesto. Yeah, I think that might be an interesting project. We'll we'll have to talk about that more after this. Start working on this. So you've been doing a lot of consulting and product management through the years. You've done it hands-on. You've done it in conjunction with other companies who help them define process. So you have to have a lot of stories, right? So why don't we talk some, about some stories you can share? Let's, let's start with the impressive stories of product management done right. Well, you know, I have this, this rather dark side, you know, and I, I remember the bad stories so much more vividly because they, they just, they make such tremendous examples in a training class. And I was doing a training class and I had just come from another company. No, no, no. It it wasn't from another company. I had read an article about some nonsensical thing done by a well-known company. And I just, I told this story and it was a long version, you know, it was like five minutes long, you know, and it was just, it was wonderfully horrible. And afterwards, one of the people in the room came up and said, so are you going to tell stories about us next week? And I went, ooh, good one. So, you know, at that point, I pretty much changed all my stories to one company I visited did this, right? But I, I've encountered some excellence, you know? There's a, a, one of the things I find is excellence tends to happen in small teams, maybe not small companies or small organizations, but there's an organization here that I worked with on and off over the years called Elucian. They used, to, they used to be called Datatel. And they had a small product management team of a somewhat larger development team. And we had some really big success with, you know, just formalizing the way they did product management. But the interesting story was their, the head of product management moved over into services and called me and said, would you train services for me? And is it any different? And I thought about it. We, we did some work together and we just concluded that, you know what? Services is just product that's not built by development. Services is product that's built by professional services, but it should be managed like a product. And, you know, it was kind of like a mind-blowing experience for everybody involved. And so she created product managers within the services department we articulated in advance what the services were that we were going to offer. And they saw quadruple growth in services in a single year. And it was really because suddenly the sales guys had a playbook. They're like, okay, you can sell this kind of an implementation. No, we don't sell people by the hour. We sell outcomes, not hours. And so, you know, I've had a number of successes like that over the years. I'm working with some really interesting companies right now. One is doing a whole lot of stuff in IoT, which which has my mind just blown. It's like, now I want everything in my house to communicate to an app. 
you know, I want my refrigerator to tell me that it's not cooling the, the, the ice cream. You know, I want my furnace to tell me it's time to change the filter. Uh, I, I want the basement somehow to tell me that there's water down there <laughs> or that I haven't turned off the sprinkler outside, you know, but they're doing some really interesting stuff and taking really the same approach. You know, there's a problem that most vendors are looking at. I'm, I'm working with a machine and yet our customers are working with hundreds of machines. So having a little light on a machine isn't what we need. We need a little light on an iPad and a consolidated one. Fascinating. Not, I worry about some of that, though. I, I think my furnace would need a lot of filters if it was talking to me, right? <laughs> the filter would need to be changed. It reminds me of printers. I, you know, I don't print very often, but three months go by and all of a sudden I need new ink, right? It doesn't matter how much I print it. Right. <laughs> I worry about that, but I can definitely see that happening. I can yeah. see that coming. Yeah, um, well, I can certainly don't get abused. I have this twisted friend who says, you know, there's that would be so cool because then the the manufacturer could command the device to request service. You know, we're having a slow month. I need to bump up my revenue. Let's send out an IoT command to all of my printers to need service. Yeah. And I was like, ah, I don't, my brain doesn't think that way, but wow, but you certainly wouldn't want your refrigerator to be hacked. Oh, although that did happen on Silicon Valley, the TV show. Right. I think that saved them. I think they were saved by the refrigerator. Indeed, they were saved by <laughs> the refrigerators. That is funny. So continuing on stories, talk to me about mistakes you've seen people making in product management. I deal with a lot of organizations that give lip service to product management. And a buddy of mine used to do this presentation about how important it was to be market driven. And he would say, you know, you're not market driven, you're sales driven, or you're not market driven, you're engineering driven. And the CEOs would always get their back up and they're like, wait a minute, you know, we listen to the market all the time. You know, our salespeople are out there constantly. And I just thought it was really kind of unfortunate and odd that, in, on slide one, he was in a heated argument with uh, his potential buyer. So that didn't work out very well. But, you know, I do see some of the organizations I work with are amazingly sales driven. The salespeople say, we don't have the products that our customer really needs. And so I'm going to design a product and I'll bring it back and dump it on product management and let them figure out how to deliver it. And so it's somebody recently, I think I was with you, referred to that as the McDonald's model of product management is salespeople and customers just pull up to the drive-thru and say, I need me a, a whatever. And it's more like going, pulling up to a deli and saying, okay, I want this kind of bread and I want this kind of meat and I want this kind of cheese. And I also want some obscure thing that you don't have. So you'll need to run across the street to the store and buy that obscure thing. So I find so many sales-driven organizations where the salespeople are derailing any attempt to make a standard product. On the other hand, I also still see a fair number of engineering-led organizations, which is probably, you know, the CEO was probably an engineer, where they say, this is what people ought to want, or everyone's wrong but me, you know, let's build this thing. And I'm, I'm hopeful that with, you know, strong product management and, you know, even, if you will, some agile techniques, we're able to get market validation or invalidation much sooner 
nowadays than we were able to before. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that that CEO, you know, other people are wrong story. I, I remember talking with, a, I guess he was a VP of product management at the time. I would think of him as probably having a CPO title today. Mm-hmm. He went into a rather large company and was helping him in a particular product area, that a new product area they were launching. And the, the GM of the product area had come from the space and, you know, he's like, I really know the market. And the VP of product management went out, did a lot of the customer interviews, compiled a ton of data about the potential market and was mapping it against, you know, their proposed roadmap, this first version of the product that they were pushing out there. He came back and said, you know, I think we need to make a lot of changes to this product. You know, right now we should do it, less impact. You know, we're barely down in the design cycles. We have time to make the changes. Here's the data I have from, you know, X number of customers, you know, not an insignificant number that support it. And the CEO came back and said, no, no, I was, I would be a buyer. You know, we just don't have, you're not talking to the right visionary people. Let's go ahead and build this. I'm, I'm really confident in it. So the CPO goes back and against his best judgment says, okay, you know, we can build this, we can get this out. I know there's a time frame tied to it. Let's do it. Gets it, launches it on time. You know, marketing guy pushes it out there. Total failure, mm-hmm. very little adoption. Mm-hmm. CPO comes back and says, okay, I think we need to redefine this for version two. And the CEO, you know, just doubles down. And he oh. says, you know, the, the problem wasn't the product. The problem was the way we messaged, the way we positioned the product. We didn't spend enough money on the launch. So he said, what we're going to do is we're going to make some improvements in these areas, you know, taking it to this version two of our original version, you know, vision and said, and then we're going to double down. We're going to spend now instead of the million dollars we spent on this product, you know, millions, and we're going to push it out there. And of course, as you might expect, you know, same result, total absolute failure. So yeah, you can you can see those stories where people are like, you know, I know what the market wants and aren't willing to listen to the data behind it. Absolutely. I have a friend who had a similar story. He joined a company. He looked at the business case. He looked at the spend and he came in soon after to the leadership team and said, I figured out how to make. $15 million a year on this new product. And there was applause in the room. They're like, yay. And he's like, we should stop the product. Let's pull it off the market. You're spending $15 million a year on development and getting $100,000 worth of revenue. How long has this been going on? And the president was at that point kind of sheepish. And, and he went, well, you know, people ought to want it. And that's the field of dreams development model. And happily, you know, my friend had data. And one of my favorite quotes, I love quotes. One of my favorite quotes is from Jim Barksdale when he was at Netscape. And he said all the time, if we have the data, then let's look at the data. If all we have is opinion, we'll use mine. And unfortunately, in, in, in your story, you know, it was like, damn the data you know, this is my opinion because God spoke to me in a dream. And that's not what Steve Jobs would do. That's another fun one. You know, like Steve Jobs didn't do that kind of stuff. Well, you know what? Actually, he did. They did extensive research. They just didn't talk about it. You know, Steve Jobs as visionary was a marketing campaign. (laughs) So what about uh, going back to product management? We talked about maybe our upcoming manifesto. But what other trends do you see in the next few years that could affect the craft of product management? Well, I really like that word, the craft. 
That is what I'm seeing. I'm uh, a couple of things that are interesting. One is apparently, you know, some some organization said that product management is one of the hot jobs of the current year. And I'm getting a tremendous number of emails from people saying, you know, I'm a junior in college and I want to be a product manager when I graduate. You know, how do I get ready for that? Or what major do I need or whatever? So I think maybe a little bit because of Steve Jobs, maybe a little bit because of Marissa Mayer. I don't know. Maybe it's Silicon Valley. I, I don't know. But but there's there has become a, a, a cachet for product management that's made it an attractive job again. So I think we have an opportunity here to make it be a craft instead of, you know, it's, it's not an art. It should be very methodical, very systematic. When I work with teams, I'm like, how do we solve this systemically instead of solving it once? And I think that this influx of new people are going to expect it to be more like a profession and less like a hobby. And I think that's all to the good. I do wonder, you know, at the articles I read about, you know, will AI change product management? Will, you know, blockchain change? Boy, I don't know. I, I do think that a lot of us are being heard in terms of the thought leading people in the industry, you know, Marty Kagan, Steve Haynes, you know, there are a number of people who are speaking out about the strategic role of product management and treating it more like a craft instead of like it's voodoo, you know, it's, it's all personality led. Now it's, it's very methodical or needs to be. I think that's true. I think it does need to be very methodical and, and, I'm excited about the fact that it seems to be trending in that direction. There's more and more people talking about it, writing about it. There's more tools out there to support it. It feels like the whole industry has matured a ton, even just recently. Mm -hmm. I agree. Well, just look at the number of tools that are available targeting product management. I mean, five years ago, there was nothing. You know, we were all using Microsoft Office. You know, we stored everything in SharePoint then we evolved to basically the same thing in Google Docs. You know, I would get documents from people that were like an index of all their Google Docs. But now we have, we have tools that are designed for product managers. And you know, there's a number of road mapping tools. There's a number of project management type tools. What we've tried to do with Under 10 Playbook is provide more of the business side of product management. So it's like, let's talk about personas and problems and sales or revenue forecasts and the research that you've done that you can collapse down to an attachment and playbooks orientation is all around where are all these valuable assets about the product that have been lost on SharePoint or lost on your personal hard drive? You know, let's put them in one place. So let's talk a little bit about you, you know, your favorite software product and why? Interesting. Well, you know, I'm, I'm going through a, a cataloging phase. You know, I have this feeling that if I had gone a different path, that I'd be like a librarian somewhere. I, I somehow love to catalog things. And I'm using a number of, of new tools, or at least new to me. There's a, a product I use called Plex, Plex.tv. And you organize all of your video stuff you know, all your podcasts, well, that, not that they're necessarily video, but all your podcasts and all your TV shows and all your movies. And 
it scans the folders that you've set up and says, let me go grab all the metadata that goes with these movies. So, you know, I, over the years, I've ripped, you know, my favorite movies on my hard drive so I can watch them from, you know, my laptop or from my desk or from my house. And it goes through and says, oh, wow, you've got that movie. Great. Here are who the actors are. Here's what the genre is. Here's uh, the plot summary. Here are other movies you have starring these actors or other people who like this album will like that album. I mean, it's just really quite amazing. And, and the same is true for music. You know, I've got iTunes is sadly turned into just this garbage can mess of media. So with Plex, I point it to my music library and it says, OK, well, if you like James Taylor, you probably also like Johnny Mitchell and Carol King. And it not only, you know, catalogs everything, but it also gives me if you're enjoying this, you should try that. Or you should hear some YouTube videos about James Taylor talking about his recent tour or whatever. I mean, it's just fabulous stuff. Likewise, I've got a, a library manager that I use called Caliber at Calibre, Calibre-Online. And I've got a whole bunch of EPUB books and Moby books and books in RTF and various formats that I've acquired over the years. And I just dump them all into Caliber and it says, all right, well, I mean, hang on, let me organize this. And it's particularly helpful for me because I like to buy a, a number of, of series. So, you know, I've bought all the, from Amazon, I've bought all the James Bond books, for instance, you know, Ian Fleming's books and, and others. But it's hard to find them on Kindle because they're all sorted by the title rather than sorted by the, the uh, series. And with Caliber, I can go through and re-tag those books and say, all right, this is bond number one, this is bond number two, this is bond number three. But I also get crazed by, you know, bad tagging. You know, this book is listed by Fleming, Ian, and this one is listed as Ian space Fleming. So some of them are under I and some of them are under F and it just drives me insane. So I, I wanted the ability to update the meta tagging myself. And, you know, in a way, that's kind of what we're doing with Under 10 Playbook. It's like you've got this garbage can of product information. Let's help you catalog it and structure it so that here's all your personas in one place. Here's all your stories in one place. Here's all your competitive info in one place. So I'm going to, I'm on a catalog base. And you mentioned music of definitely a passion of yours, right? Yes. Yes. I paid my so way what, through school playing guitar in bars. Yeah. What, what do you think of this? Just to hide me from the sky. <laughs> So how's that? So wow, that's a that's a really good artist. Yeah, I've I've been a musician since I was 15 and I've been a songwriter since I was like 16. And a few years ago, my son got out of college. He toured with a rock band for a few years and he was home for the holidays and said, "You know, 
mom says you wrote a bunch of stuff back in the day. Let's record some of it. And so I would sit down with him and I'd play a song. I'd leave town. I'd come back and he'd say, okay, I've got some basic stuff in place. Sing, sing a vocal for me. And then I'd go away. And we, we did this for a few months. And then he said, okay, I'm, 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 I'm ready to give it to you, but you need a band name. You know, you can't just be Steve Johnson. And I found this article on how to name your band. You know, it was like, what is your, what is your hooker name? Or what is your Star Wars name? And this was, you know, what is your band name? And it said, go to Wikipedia and click on the random link. And whatever comes up is the first part of your band name. And so I clicked on the random link and up came a page called Not Exactly C, which is a, a, a variant of the C programming language. And I went, boom, I'm there, you know, not exactly Steve, because the truth is I'm only singing. You know, I wrote most of the songs. My son wrote a couple of the songs. I sing all the songs. He does everything else. He's got all the guitar parts, the bass, the drums, the, the background vocals. And his big gift to me that year for Christmas is to post it in iTunes. And so it's available from Amazon and from iTunes. I've sold a few hundred, maybe a thousand. I don't know how many. But it's a it's a wonderful gift that he gave me. Well, let's see if we can get it up to maybe another thousand. I like the uh, soulful, yeah. soothing voice. Well, thank you. Thank you. I've had people say that I'm somewhat James Taylory with a little bit of the traveling Wilburys in it. So that's kind of interesting. And yeah, available at notexactlysteve.com. So back on the product management, we're kind of wrapping things up. <laughs> Words of wisdom. We, there's a lot of nuggets of gold today. If you had to summarize into, you know, kind of the short words of wisdom, what would they be for others, you know, in product management or product leadership? Well, for product leadership, you know, I really want to work with teams to help provide an infrastructure for success. You know, if uh, a lot of the people I talk to about this, you know, being this problem manager, being the speaker of problems and visiting customers and understanding their issues and articulating that to development, you know, I'll tell them that story and then they'll say, yeah, but my boss doesn't know what you're talking about. And sure enough, the boss will come in and say, hey, I need you to go on a sales call. So, you know, I've got to do some work working with the C-level and the VP level to get them to understand what product management should be doing for them. Because I'm convinced that most product managers are not doing the job that they need to do. And we're paying them an awful lot of money to be secretaries to development or gophers for marketing. So anyway, for product managers, my message is become the expert in problems. No one else is. Salespeople know there's a problem at a client. Product managers need to be able to say, yeah, that's a problem at every client. So for me, product management is about the all customers, not a customer. And it's about finding problems and then relying on the brilliance of engineering to solve those problems in ways that we can't even think of. It's the brilliance of working with marketing to say, you know, I'm encountering this problem in growth. How do you recommend I solve it? And they go, oh, wow, that would be a, a campaign like this, or that would be this sort of a deliverable. I think that we are so often, you know, support for those other groups in a very tactical way, but we could be vastly more strategic if we were the experts on market problems. So one final question for you, three words to describe yourself. Well, you know, forgive me for this promotion. I, I think my favorite would be Under 10 Playbook. 
in that throughout my career, I have taken this playbook approach. You know, when I, I took a new job, first thing I did was get a notebook and start filling it with the artifacts that I needed for my product. My daughter took a job years ago that was so funny. She accepted this job. She showed up and she said, now, where's my sales playbook? And they said, well, there's a lot of good stuff on SharePoint. And she just wandered through SharePoint and found just these, this nonsensical set of documents And that weekend, she and I sat down and we created a sales playbook. You know, here are the personas. Here's a a, a, basically a paper CRM system. We created sales slicks for all of the products that she had to sell. And then she brought it in that week and everybody in the office was like, you know, can I get one of those? And, you know, and she was kind. She gave them all. And I went, you should have sold them. You should have said, I want 5% (laughs) of your commissions for the next six months. But Playbook is certainly a thing that I have used throughout my career. And then the other phrase there is under 10. We're all doing too much. We have too many kinds of deliverables. We have too many emails and too many meetings and too many steps in our process. And when I talk to people about their process that that they are supposed to be following, they can't tell me what it is. So under 10 playbook is one. And then one other thing, I I just love this whole three words thing. There's a new site called what three words that I totally want to be successful in some way. I'm not sure how they're going to be, but they have mapped the earth down to every square meter has a three word address. So my company address, I looked this up. My company address is mystified, spiked, outdone. So if you go to your phone and you put in, you go to the what three words and you put that in, it'll tell you exactly how to get to my office down to a square meter. Why in the world am I saying, well, my address is 4741, whatever my address is. I can't remember my address. My address is this long. And would it be great if you could just like send a mail message to, you know, Steve's three words? So check out what three words. I'm fascinated by the concept. If they can find a way to normalize it in Google Maps and Apple Maps and who and Waze, we'd be able to get into an Uber and say, you know what? I'm going to, you know, strangled phone ruler. And I don't know if I want to get into an Uber and go to strangle, but I I do like, I do like this idea. And I I did see the, I went to the website, I guess a week or two ago. I'm not sure how I got there, but it was very interesting. It's fascinating. So when you brought up three words, I initially, you know, I just immediately thought of what three words. So check that out. It's a very cool idea. And to me, it's brilliant from product management and as well as a development standpoint. From the product management side, it's like giving people addresses and getting to places is a kind of complete pain. And from the development standpoint, saying, well, there are enough words in the dictionary that we we can actually pinpoint it with three words. I mean, I think that's a, a brilliant implementation, as long as your three words are, you know, good ones. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I'm kind of curious now about what the three words for my house are. I'm going to have to check that out. Yeah, well, next time you get an Uber, you can just say, you know, take me to Mystified, Spiked Out, Done, and you'll be right there at my office. And I'll take you off. Sounds great. Now everyone knows where your office is. Indeed. Come by and visit. (laughs) Thank you, Steve. This has been awesome. I appreciate your time. 
Thank you for having me.